You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. All right, good morning. Good to see you. If this is your first time with us today, welcome. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're joining us on the live stream, thanks so much for worshiping with us as well. And if it is your very first time here, we'd love to give you a gift this morning, a tumbler or a sippy cup or a water bottle. That's our gift to you. You can get that over at the info desk after the service if it's your first time with us. If you would like more information about our church, if you don't have a name tag and would like to sign up for one, if you'd like us to be praying about something, have a prayer request, there should be a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, and then put it in the offering slot which is over there. So excited to have Dinners for Eight starting up again. Really encourage you to sign up for that. Do not bring that cake to my house if we end up in the same place, but I would love to see all of you there. Why don't we stand up and say good morning to the people around you? What's up, man? Morning. Good to see you. Fellas, good man. How are you? How's life? Same. One day at a time. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning, sir. Good to see you. Today, as we continue our series on Esther, I want to talk about moving from cowardice to courage. Moving from cowardice to courage. Can't believe 10 years have passed since this happened, but you might remember this. 2012, a young man entered a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. He drew a firearm and began to shoot at the unsuspecting audience. And instantly, a number of men jumped up, leapt in front of their girlfriends to protect them, and ended up dying in the process. And as reports about this came out, they were universally praised for their heroism. That same year, you might remember, an Italian cruise liner struck a rock and quickly began to sink. And as the ship sank, the captain decided to leave the ship and left 300 passengers on board to fend for themselves. 
He was later convicted of manslaughter, sentenced to 16 years in prison, and not surprisingly, he was universally condemned for being a coward. And it's interesting, whatever those men did prior to that moment, for good or for ill, what will they be remembered for? What they did in the moment of crisis. Did you take the path of courage or the path of the coward? All of us are going to have a, a crisis point in our lives. It might not be that dramatic, but you're going to have a time when you have to make that decision, will I be courageous or will I be cowardly? And, and that moment really reveals who you are. C.S. Lewis said that courage is not simply a virtue, it's actually the form every virtue takes at the point of testing. In other words, courage reveals character. You're going to have a crisis moment in your life, and there's going to be a binary choice, and you're going to have to decide. Courage or cowardice? Maybe you have to risk yourself to protect someone physically. Maybe you'll see an injustice, and it's going to be your responsibility to address it. You might see persistent sin in the life of a believer close to you, and you are the one that has to call them out and deal with it. God might put you in someone's life to share the gospel, and you are the person to do it. Someone else is not going to be the one. You might see something at work and have to make an unpopular decision. I think we all want to be like the people in the movie theater and not like the captain, right? That's who we want to be. So how do you become that kind of person? Chapter 4 of Esther is a great case study in courage. We're in this series on the book of Esther, and you know, for all of her strengths and weaknesses, what do we remember Esther for? Being courageous. That in the moment of testing, she did the right thing. That's what God used to deliver his people. In fact, that's what God still uses. I believe for, for Creekside, if we're going to be used by God, if we're going to advance his kingdom, if we're going to see people come to know Jesus, it's not so much about competence or capability. Really, it's going to come down to courage. Are we willing to take risks for the kingdom of God? So, so how do you become courageous? Well, today you see Esther's transformation from a, from a cowardly queen to a courageous queen, from a woman who hides from her identity to a woman who by the end of the chapter is saying, if I perish, I perish. What made the change I want to look at three steps toward courage this morning. How do you become courageous? How do you become the kind of person who will respond with courage at the crisis moment? Three steps. And it's got to be three steps, right? Because it's memorable. Step one, you've got to choose your side. You've got to realize there are sides to choose, and you can either fear God or you can fear people, but you can't do both. Step two, you need to see your need. Courage ultimately doesn't come from me. I can't generate it. It, it comes from God. And that changes the way I, I look for courage. Finally, I have to own my role. I need to embrace the fact that God has put me in a position and then accept by God's providence the responsibility that comes with that position. So pick a side, see your need, own your role. Let's pray and then let's look at this text. 
God, your word says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God, we need your strength to become courageous people. Jesus, I help, pray that you would help us become like you, full of courage. I ask it for your sake. Amen. Step one in becoming a courageous person, pick a side. Pick a side. Why is that important? There's lots of definitions of courage. I read a bunch of them this week, and they're all a little bit different, but almost every one begins the same way, and you can guess what it is, right? Courage is not the absence of fear, but blah, 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 whatever courage is. But, but seemingly everyone agrees on that, that courage is not the absence of fear, it's acting in spite of the fear, and that's true. Fear is part of life. You're always going to be afraid, but, but a biblical definition of courage goes one step further. According to Scripture, courage isn't acting in spite of the fear, it's acting out of the right fear. It's actually fighting fear with fear. It's saying that I can either fear people or I can fear God. And that will determine whether I act courageously because ultimately courage comes down to fearing God more than people. And that's the lesson, the first lesson Esther has to learn in this passage. Chapter 4 begins this way. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Last week, we learned about Haman's plot to exterminate the Jews. He convinces the king to issue this edict, ordering the destruction of Jews throughout the Persian Empire. When Mordecai learns of this, what does he do? He mourns. He goes into a state of ritual mourning, as do Jews throughout the, the empire. But notice, in Mordecai's case, the mourning is very public. He puts on sackcloth. In the, in the Bible, that's an image of being irritated. You, you can't be comforted. It irritates the, the skin. You, you're in distress. And, and ashes are a, a sign of, of grief and death and despair. So these are the, the garments of ritual mourning, but Mordecai doesn't just put on those garments. Look where he goes. He goes right up to the entrance of the king's palace, and he cries out, and he does it loudly. Why would he do that? Well, you couldn't be sad in the king's presence. So what does Mordecai do? He goes as close to the king as he can, right up to the gate. Can't be sad inside. You can be sad outside. He goes as close as he can, and he wails loudly. What's he trying to do? He's trying to get as close to the king as he can so that he will hear his cry. That, that's Mordecai's strategy here. He is honest about his grief. Now, that's courage. Because who is he going against? The king and his decree. Mike Cosper makes a great point about this in his little book on Esther. You know, because today it's very popular to say this, that courage is being vulnerable. 
You hear that? If you're, if you're vulnerable, you're brave. And what I would say, what Cosper says is this, it depends. It depends. Because in a culture where everyone praises vulnerability, is it that brave to be vulnerable? It depends. Well, let me give you an example, right? Like, like, I'll come up here and share things about my life to be vulnerable, right? And I'll talk about getting angry at my kids or angry at my wife. But you know what happens when I do that? People come up to me and they go, you're so vulnerable. I love that. I love having a pastor who's vulnerable, right? And you can keep doing that. That's fine. Um, but, but is it brave for me to do that? Well, I mean, it could be kind of calculated. Makes me a better pastor if I'm vulnerable. Makes me more effective at communicating to you. That's not very courageous. Vulnerability isn't courageous if you know you're going to be praised for what you say. It's brave to be vulnerable when you're honest and there is legitimate fear of blowback. That's courage. That's Mordecai. He is now public about his identification as one of God's people. He is publicly going against the king. He is putting his life at risk. And so we don't know if Mordecai's protest ever reached the king, but we do know it reached Esther. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, deeply distressed, Mordecai's very public act has apparently caused quite a stir. It's quickly reported to Esther. Now, Esther doesn't know why Mordecai is mourning, only that his mourning is public and she's troubled because he's troubled. And it's interesting, Esther's servants seem to know that she has some kind of relationship with this guy. But remember, up to this point in the narrative, Esther's Jewishness is still hidden. And that is critical to how this narrative unfolds. So Esther knows Mordecai's mourning, doesn't know why, and so she, she tries to figure out a solution here. So Esther sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Now, here's the problem. Esther cannot go to Mordecai because she'll have to go out of the palace and have a very public conversation about what's wrong. That might expose her Jewish identity. That's a problem. Mordecai can't come into the palace because he's in a state of ritual mourning, so Esther tries to solve the problem. Give you new clothes, you can come in, we can have a private conversation, but Mordecai won't do it. Why? This is his way of saying, Esther, no, it's a really big deal. And, and Esther, I will not leave this state of mourning until the issue is resolved. That's how big a deal it is. So, plan A doesn't work. Esther must opt for plan B and find another way to communicate with Mordecai. The text goes on and says this. Then Esther called for Hathak, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, okay? That's what we're going to go with. One of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and, was, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So Esther sends Hathak this servant, and apparently this guy was trustworthy. 
Because this is very sensitive information. This is the most trustworthy servant. And so now they're having this indirect conversation about what's happened. And Mordecai, he doesn't just say what happened. He lays out the nitty-gritty details, right? He says, here's the decree. Here's what's issued. Here's what you need to know. And we saw in chapter 2, Mordecai has this extensive network of contacts within the palace. So he knows what happened, and he actually knows how the sausage was made, right? He knows how the deal went down, and so he shares that with Esther, and he says, Esther, you wouldn't believe it. Haman offered this much money. This is crazy. And, and you can tell Mordecai is trying to provoke Esther to do something. Esther, you need to be outraged by this. Don't you see how wicked this is? But note, Esther is still unmoved. Look at how she responds. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Look at the contrast between Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai cares. He is concerned Esther is cynical. Her response is a kind of cool dismissal. Mordecai, everybody knows. Everybody knows. You can't just go into the king. Uh, apparently, the king had become paranoid, unapproachable, and had decreed, if anyone comes to me uninvited, it meant certain death. Now, that seems like a problem, but here's the question I ask when I hear that. Why couldn't Esther just request a hearing with the king, right? After all, the decree had just gone out. It was going to take a year before this went into effect. Why, why couldn't Esther just say like, hey, king, your infinite magnificence, um, can we get coffee? Maybe tomorrow. I just need 20 minutes, right? Just, just have a chat. Why wouldn't Esther do that? Well, well, apparently, there's not just this legal barrier. There's this emotional barrier too. The, the king doesn't really like Esther anymore. Hasn't summoned her for a few days. Esther was falling out of favor. Actually, the conflict is deeper than this. See, this isn't just a problem about the mechanics of port, court protocol. Think about Esther's fundamental problem here, because this is, not, this is really a crisis of identity. Think about how the story has unfolded up to this point. What do we know about the king? He's an idiot, right? We know that. We've learned that. He's temperamental. He's impulsive. He's malleable. People give him suggestions. And he just goes, okay. And then he makes crazy decisions, like an executive order to every wife in the empire. That's crazy. And he just made this order to, to exterminate the Jews. That's what we know. What else do we know about him? He wants a queen who is malleable who is submissive. Because remember Vashti? He summons her. She says no. That's chapter one. He's incensed. He deposes her as queen. Why did he like Esther? Why was she the perfect candidate for queen? Well, aside from being smoking hot, what do we know about her from chapter two? She's submissive. She's malleable. She hid her Jewishness. She was a woman who, to him, had no identity. 
and could be formed into whatever he wanted her to be. That's the kind of queen he wanted, right? The rabbi David Foreman says that Esther is the girl from nowhere. And because of that, the king could shape her into whatever. And Esther played that role. She came to the heights of global power. And we have every reason to believe that she continued to play that role up to the present moment of just being the projection of all the king's desires, doing whatever he wanted, and that's how she had her privilege and position. What does she have to do to go to the king now? What's her dilemma? Hey, king, I've been lying to you. I'm not Esther. I'm actually Hadassah. I'm not the girl from nowhere. I'm actually a Jew. And my allegiance is to my people, the Jews, who you just decreed to exterminate, and we need to do something about this. How do you think that would play? Esther would not leave that room with her head on her shoulders. Do you see now why this is such a crisis for Esther? No matter what route she chooses to go before the king, she's going to take her life into her hands, and the fundamental crisis is identity. It's identity. She has not been transparent about her allegiance to God or God's people. That's a crisis that we have to go through, whether in your work or in your relationships. Maybe you've played a part and you've been malleable and you haven't been clear about your convictions. And now to tell people, oh, guess what? I'm a Christian will seem really weird, right? Oh, by the way, I follow Jesus and he's really important to me. Like, what? I've known you for six years. You never told me that. You sure he's really important? It's weird, isn't it? And it seems like there's this insurmountable barrier to being honest about your true convictions. That's, that's the crisis times a million that Esther is going through here. Esther says, look, Mordecai, I don't, I'm not in the position you think I'm in, but Mordecai will not take no for an answer. But his response is weird, okay? This is weird when you think about it. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's almost as if Mordecai and Esther are just talking directly to each other now. The, the tension builds, and Mordecai will not take no for an answer. But, but think about what he says, because at face value, this is a weird motivational speech. It's weird, okay? First of all, he says, Esther, whether you cooperate or not, the Jews will be delivered. That's not how you motivate someone, Right? What I would have said is, Esther, you're, you know, help me, Obi-Wan. You're our only hope. That's when you give this speech. But he says, you know, Esther, even if you don't do this, we'll get delivered. Right? You don't take the quarterback in the pregame and be like, hey, even if you play bad, we're going to win. Okay? Just want to let you know. Like, that's, that's not what you say. And yet, that's what he says. What is Mordecai saying here? Well, God's always behind the scenes in Esther, but here's the subtext. Mordecai knows the promises to Israel and, and that God is going to bless his people and that through his people, he's going to bless the world and he's going to preserve his seed. And so he's like, one way or the other, God's ultimately going to deliver the Jews. We're not going to be completely destroyed, Esther. 
So that's the first thing he says. He's confident. Esther, we don't actually need you. So why should she act? Here's what he says. If you keep silent at this time, you and your father's house will perish. Now, what does that mean? Why is Esther's silence a guarantee that she will perish? Here's what I think it means. Esther has lived her whole life denying her allegiance to the Jews. And, subtext, denying her allegiance to who? The the God of Israel, Yahweh. She's lived like a pagan up to this point. And now she has a crisis point. Will you give your allegiance to Yahweh or will you just assimilate completely into the culture? And here's what Mordecai is saying. You have to pick a side. And if you side with the earthly king, you're going to go against the king of kings. And he won't be mocked. And you, the last remaining member of your father's house in Israel, that's what you symbolize, Esther. You're about to be cut off from Israel. Your family, in a spiritual sense, is destroyed. You are leaving the people of Israel here. That's how high the stakes are, Esther. You can't sit this one out. Don't you love the way he says it? If you remain silent. There are situations in life where we don't want to pick a side. We want to be Switzerland, right? We want to be neutral. Sometimes we can. Sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes you have to make a decision. I'm going to please God. Am I going to please people? And I'm going to make an enemy one way or the other. That's what Mordecai is saying. And that is ultimately what motivates Esther to move, is realizing I cannot deny my allegiance to God or his people any longer. You know, the only way to fight fear in your life is with what? A greater fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Who you live in awe of will determine your actions. And so think about the area where you need to be courageous right now. Might be a difficult conversation you might have, an unpopular thing that you got to do at work where you're going to get blowback, but you know it's the right thing to do. Maybe a hard conversation you've been putting off. The only thing that motivates you to step into that discomfort is who am I living to please? And when you realize that there's a binary decision in life between pleasing human authorities or pleasing God's authority, when it comes down to that, the choice gets clear, right? Because in the end, I would rather have the king as my enemy than the king of kings and displease him. So that's the first thing you've got to get clear on is to embrace your allegiance. That's what Esther says. So she seeks to please the right person. Second, she depends on the right power. Then Esther, notice Esther gets agency now. Now she's acting. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. All right, Esther has officially come out as a Jew. There's no more anonymity. Her servants know it. People know it. Her fate is sealed. So what's the first thing Esther does? It's not, I'm going to pump myself up and go in there, is it? I'm going to give myself a motivational speech. I'm going to rehearse my lines. No, what does she say? Fast. Jews are already fasting. She says, hold a fast. 
Why do they fast? This is a way of begging for God's power and favor and intervention. That's a reason to fast in the Bible is, God, we are desperate for you. We are more desperate for you than food. And so we're going to assail the heavenly throne. We want your attention. We want your help. We're serious. This is a serious fast. Three days, three nights, no food, no water. Everyone do it. And you know what's significant about this fast in particular? To show how serious it is? The timing of the fast. She says, hold this fast. Now think about this. We looked at this last week. Remember when the decree goes out? It's the, what is it? I forgot. 13th day, the first month. What were the Jews doing? getting ready to celebrate right now. Passover. They're making the preparations. This is the biggest feast of the Jewish year. And what does Esther say? Cancel it. Cancel it. It's time to fast. That is disruptive, isn't it? (laughs) That's saying we need this more than anything right now, God. Here's the question to ask yourself if you need courage. Where do I need courage? Where are you going to get the courage to live it out? You cannot generate the courage you need to do what God calls you to do. Only God can give it to you. And so how desperate are you for God's strength? Here's a way to measure that. How much does your desperation disrupt your life? See how it disrupted the Jews' life? Where are you desperate for God's power, for his wisdom, for his clarity? Because if you're really desperate for it, it will be disruptive. It will take up some time in your morning. It might even cause you to skip a meal, right? God forbid. It it will cause you to do things to focus on God and plead for his power. You know, to live courageously as Christians this is where it gets practical. I, I was talking about my, my dad about it this week, but you know, so often we're, we're reactive in our prayers rather than proactive. And you know this if you've been in a small group, right? Almost every prayer request is, is basically this. This bad thing happened, right? Let's pray about it. And that's good. You should pray about those things. But, but if you only pray about the bad things that have already happened, You're never asking God looking forward for the things where you need his power, his wisdom, right? It's sort of like you're you're driving through life only looking through the back windshield, right? Oh, geez, that happened, right? Fix that, God. Fix that. Rather than looking forward and saying, here's what's coming this week. Here are the times where I'm anticipating testing and trial and turmoil. And Lord, here as I look ahead, here's where I need your help. And so think about it. In the coming week, where are you going to need courage? Because you're not going to generate it, but God can. And he promises to be there with you. Start praying now. Start praying now. That's the difference between worldly courage and, 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 and biblical courage. Biblical courage comes from outside ourselves. It comes from God. So choose your side, see your need. Finally, you need to own your role. Own your role. Here's what that means. It means saying, God, in your providence, you've given me this responsibility, and I accept it. 
You ever notice that, that a lot of people don't want to take responsibility? We love to praise other, I mean, or condemn other people for not taking responsibility, right? If a, if a first responder doesn't respond to danger, we criticize them relentlessly, right? Because that's their job description. That's what they signed up for is when danger happens, they run toward it. But the challenge for us is do we accept the responsibility God has given us where we and only we are responsible and accountable to make a decision? The sinful human heart naturally has an aversion to accept responsibility. It's too terrifying. I, I read a fascinating article by a woman named Natalia Dashan about her time at Yale. Super interesting. She came from a, a working class family, excelled academically, got into Yale, and, and she's at Yale and she knows she's a little out of place and this is the upper crust of society. And it's all these elite students. And here's what she found. They, a lot of them, they complained about how they didn't have any money. And she's like, what in the world? And she'd be like, you want to go get a sandwich? They'd be like, a oh, sandwich, look at you. You're a big spender here. She'd be like, all right, you want to go to this, this concert? We can take the bus. Oh, look at you, just taking the bus, going to concert. And she's like, what is going on? And when she got to know these students better, she found out that they were the kids of hedge fund managers and super wealthy, powerful people. And so what was going on? A lot of them just sort of pretended to be poor. Now, why would they do that? Here was her theory. They knew they were from the upper crust. And they knew that because of that, there were expectations on them. That they would be looked at a certain way. That they would be expected to take certain responsibility in life. They would be criticized in certain ways. And it was just easier to pretend to not be from that than to have to deal with the feedback, the comments you'd receive. And it was easier to pretend you didn't have privilege and power to come up with people above you to criticize. <laughs> I think that is a natural thing in the human heart that no matter how much privilege or power or wealth that we accumulate, to say, ah, oh, there's someone above me that actually controls things. <laughs> I'm not responsible. It's not my responsibility. Look at Esther. She's the queen. She's the queen. Like, if anybody could do something about it, who is it? It's Esther. What does Esther say? There's got to be someone else. What can I do? Like, who else is there? And that's the point that Mordecai is driving home. And this is what makes Esther a changed woman when she says, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for what? Such a time as this. Esther, do you see how improbable it is that you're in this position? This is crazy. Can you at least consider that maybe you're here for this purpose? That's true for all of us, no matter what position in life we're in, right? Esther, she, she didn't take the most noble route to get to this position. We've seen that already, right? She's just there. And for you, maybe you look at where you are in life and job and work and family and you go, you know, I didn't always take the best road to get here. Well, guess what? You're here. And God has providentially put you there for such a time as this. There is a unique role for you to play that no one else can play. Only you can play it. And when you see God's providence in that, then you go, well, if God put me here, I'm accountable to be here. 
And so the question for each of us is, what has God uniquely given you responsibility to do? Right, if you're a parent, there is no one else who is responsible or accountable for raising those kids. That's it. That's who you answer to. If you're a leader at work, you are responsible for the culture that's getting created. That falls on you, right? At your job, your domain of responsibility, that is yours from God, and you have to own it, not just as a human responsibility, but a providential, God-given. Do you see how the stakes are raised now? That God puts you in that role. If you are a neighbor to someone who doesn't know Jesus, right? Who on earth would talk to them about Jesus? <laughs> right? Well, who's closest? <laughs> Who has the relationship? Own the responsibility God has given you. And once you do that, you can accept the consequences of responsibility. I had to learn this over COVID, Okay? Because here's one thing I learned very early on in COVID. I was going to make a decision that someone didn't like. Right? And a lot of them, it was like, man, whatever I make, it's about (laughs) 50-50. In terms of will we like it, will we not like it. And I love to please people. I love it so much. Right? I'd rather stick a needle in my eye than be disliked by someone, right? I just, I, ah, I hate being disliked by people. And what I realized is I couldn't just consensus my way into everything and make everyone happy. At some point, I went like, nope, you got to make decisions, and ultimately, I'm responsible to make them. And if I don't make it, it's my fault for not making it. What are those things in your life where it ultimately falls on you to make a decision? That's where God has providentially placed you, and then you can do what Esther does and say, if I perish, I perish. What's Esther saying? Basically, this is something in life worth failing at because it's the right thing to do. And I love the biblical echo here because the author is very deliberate here. You know what Esther is doing here? She is living true to the lineage of her father's house. There's only one other place in the Hebrew Bible where that phrase, if I perish, I perish, is said elsewhere. Do you know where it is? It's in the Genesis story where Jacob has to give up Benjamin. And Benjamin is going to go to Egypt because Joseph demands to see Benjamin. You remember that? And Jacob is forced to decide, will I give up this beloved son, my prized possession, to save everyone from famine? Or will I keep him? And what does he say? If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. It's actually more similar in Hebrew. Now, what point is being made here? Just as Benjamin, the father of the tribe, That his fate, his life, all of Israel's fate was bound up with that. In the same way now, Esther, descendant of Benjamin, her fate is bound up with Israel's again. And Esther accepts her part in God's plan, lives true to the family line, and says, you know what? For the sake of the nation, if I perish, I perish. And just as God used Benjamin to save Israel from famine, he will use this descendant of Benjamin, Esther, to save Israel once again. 
If I perish, I perish. I love that because, you know, I've thought about this a lot. So much of our fear in life is fear of failure, right? Right? Homer Simpson, trying is the first step toward failure. My favorite quote. Yeah. It's just scary to try. But the older I get, I realize the fear in life should not be, the fear should not be failing at the right things. It should be succeeding at the wrong things. When I get to heaven, I'd much rather know that I failed from an earthly perspective when I shared the gospel or tried to disciple my kids or stood on my integrity or sought the kingdom even though I didn't see earthly success than that I killed it in all of these things that don't matter at all. Courage is being willing to fail at the right thing. Right? And that's a life without regret. <laughs> Saying even if from an outside perspective I failed, I didn't. Because I went all in for the right things. And now Esther has totally owned her role. The character changes happened. You know how we know? Because Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Now think about this. Up to this point in the narrative, Mordecai is ordering Esther to do everything. And Esther is only submissive, only malleable, and now she changes. What is the change? Oh, wait, I'm the queen. There is authority and responsibility that only I can wield. And now I need to use it for the benefit of people. So I need to make decisions. She has owned her role, and that's the change. That's the change. Isn't it amazing? God is never mentioned in this chapter. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And yet it's so clear that who does courage come from? God. Courage comes from fearing the right person, from relying on his power, trusting his providence that he put you where he puts you. And if you believe that, you will live in response to God. You will be a courageous person. And that's the kind of person God uses. You know, Jesus faced a similar dilemma to Esther, didn't he? Because when he was being questioned by the Jewish religious establishment, they asked him, who are you, right? They said, are you the son of God? And Jesus knew that answering truthfully would seal his faith. And he said, I am. And they said, that's blasphemy. They condemned him to death. In that moment, what's Jesus saying? If I perish, I perish. But what's the difference between Jesus and Esther? He actually did perish. God's plan was for him to die so that we would not. And what amazes me about that story is as Jesus is sealing his own fate with his honesty, the disciples are doing what? Being cowards. They're all denying him and all running away. And yet, who are the people that Jesus ultimately uses? It's all those cowards who didn't fall him to the death are the ones who after his death gladly go to death for him. Jesus knows how to take a coward and make them courageous. He's a courageous savior. He dies to make us those kind of people. That's our hope. That's our hope. Let's pray. So God, I confess to being cowardly, um, to shrinking back from what you've called me to. And Lord, um, Courage isn't natural. 
And so, Jesus, we thank you for being a faithful Savior who's faithful when we are faithless and whose Spirit lives in us to give us power. And, Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness. Lord, not to be reckless or brash, but to be convicted and to do what's right even when it's unpopular, to say what's true even when it's hard, and, Lord, to be the kind of people who will risk suffering when it is right for your sake. Thank you, Jesus, that you never ask us to go somewhere you haven't already been, that you are the true courageous Savior. Help us to follow you. In your name, amen.